Our first reading is from Isaiah, reading from chapter 65, verses 17 to 25, and then on to chapter 66, reading a couple of verses from there. The glorious new creation. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the city of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives for a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred years will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For, like the days of a tree, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain, or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring blessed by the Lord, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. But the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, said the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, said the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, said the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. The second reading is from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. The new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this, for these things are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who will conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The vision of the new Jerusalem. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And in the spirit, he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from the God. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. People will bring it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abominations or falsehoods, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river in the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river is the tree of life, which its twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree offer the healing of the nations. Thanks be to God for his word. So this week we're coming to the end of our series on the book of Revelation. And if you're sitting there going, oh no, I've always wanted to hear someone preach through the book of Revelation and I didn't know it was happening, don't worry, you can listen to them all again on our website or our podcast stream. However, if you're sitting there thinking, I've had enough of the book of Revelation, this is it. We finished today. It feels a lifetime ago, and for some people, it actually is. But uh, a bit like I'm told with the assassination of Kennedy, those of us over a certain age will always remember where we were on the day of September the 11th, 2001. Surely it was the defining moment of the opening years of the 21st century, this terrible terrorist atrocity perpetrated in New York City. Two airplanes deliberately flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. And then the subsequent attacks on the Madrid train network in March 2004, the London public transport system on the 7th of July 2005, some of which happened very close to where we're sat now. Whilst not comparable in terms of their death toll, have nonetheless acquired, I think, similar symbolic importance. 
The years 2014 to 2016 have seen more people killed by terrorist attacks in Europe than all previous years combined. Brussels, Nice, Paris, Toulouse, Istanbul, Manchester, Berlin, Barcelona, Copenhagen, St. Petersburg, Stockholm, and London twice more, all featuring in lists of cities experiencing terrorism in recent years. We need organizations like Abrahamic Reunion. And these events have raised many questions and provoked responses that span the globe. I think it's interesting to note that the kind of the seminal events of New York and Madrid and London and the other cities that then followed have dominated the international arena in ways that other deaths on a similar scale have not. For example, most of us who travel on buses or the tube have a residual fear still stemming from the 2005 London attacks. I don't know about you, but it, it crosses my mind sometimes when I'm on the tube. In a way that the fear of crossing the road doesn't. And yet, the stats will tell you that you are far more likely to be killed in a traffic accident in London than ever you are in an act of terrorism. And it seems that whatever logic tells us, our hearts tell us something else. And it's because there's something symbolic about these attacks targeted on internationally important cities that kind of transcends the death toll statistics, however horrifying those statistics may be. In the popular imagination, these cities of London, and Madrid, and New York have come to stand for more than the sum of their parts. So in terms of New York, the Big Apple is, for millions of people, more than just a city. It's a dream. It's a symbol of happiness and prosperity. It's the gateway to the promised land. It is the new world. Similarly, the World Trade Center was more than an office block. It was the symbol of Western capitalist success. And tragic though the deaths in New York in 2001 were, the attention and impact that they have had and attracted far exceeds that which might be attached to similar levels of death and suffering around the globe that do not carry such symbolic power. And this, this function of cities, with their ability to kind of represent more than the sum of their parts, is nothing new. Since the earliest days of civilization, cities have represented the best and the worst of humanity. They represent both humanity's greatest achievements and also the scene of its greatest evils. And in the book of Revelation, John recognizes this, and he uses this image of two cities to represent the best and the worst of humanity. And, and to this end, he juxtaposes, he sets against each other on the one hand, Babylon, and on the other hand, Jerusalem. Now, of course, the real city of Babylon had been long destroyed by the time the book of Revelation was written somewhere in the mid to late first century. The great and beautiful city of ancient times and mythology, with its hanging gardens and its impressive architecture, stood no more by the time you get to the first century. 
In the time of John and the book of Revelation, Babylon was no longer a place of cruelty and evil, where captives were killed for the pleasure of the citizens, countless hordes watching in fascination as innocent people were murdered in front of their eyes for entertainment purposes. But Babylon as an image still lived on in the Jewish imagination. It had come to represent, symbolically, all that was evil and corrupt. It had come to stand for those aspects of human society which were opposed to God's ideal for humanity. So in the book of Revelation, John uses this language and image of Babylon to signify the satanic tendency of humanity to construct idolatrous empires that challenge the lordship of the one on the throne in heaven. It's kind of like Babylon might be gone, but Babylon still lives on, gets reinvented. So he uses the language of Babylon as a powerful reminder that no matter how great and how beautiful human achievements can be, no matter how powerful and impressive the cities that they construct, evil still remains a part of the human experience, raining death and destruction on innocent people through the imperial pretensions of those who deny the kingdom of heaven. John's theological point here is, in any age, if you go constructing a Babylon, however great you might think it is, it's going to ultimately bring death and evil on its citizens. In recent years, it's been the claim to establish an Islamic state that has grabbed the death-dealing headlines. In past years gone past, the imposition of Christian states has had a history every bit as bloody and coercive. This is not something that is confined to one religious tradition. And the image of Babylon in the book of Revelation is there to tell those who encounter it, those of us who read it, that there is nowhere that we are completely safe from the threat of evil. Even in the great cities, places that inspire feelings of safety and security, people find no true protection from death and suffering. So John is kind of deconstructing the myth of the great imperial city. And he does this by pointing at Rome in his day and saying, Rome is just Babylon reinvented. So he's inviting the citizens of Rome, the people who he's writing to, living in these Roman cities in Asia Minor, to realize that the empire they live under, it's just Babylon over again. And no matter how hard humans try to reconstruct heaven on earth, all they ultimately achieve is idolatry and suffering because we end up worshiping the thing we create. And against this rather bleak vision of humanity, John then gives his audience another picture, another image, another city, in his description of the New Jerusalem. Now, traditionally, Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, was regarded by the Jews as the city of God, the place where they had their focus of worship in the temple. And in the Jewish religious tradition, Jerusalem had come to represent a city of hope, a city of peace, the place where God lived amongst his people. Jerusalem, too, had come to be a city that stood for more than the sum of its parts. 
In reality, it was just the capital city of Israel, and it was beset by fighting and difficulty just like any other human community. But in the popular mindset, in people's imaginations, Jerusalem had come to stand for a load more than this. It had become a symbol of hope that one day God would right the world's wrongs, that it would itself become a place where people could live at peace with their God. And John picks up this image, this hopeful, sort of slightly mythologized Jerusalem, and he talks to his readers of what he calls the New Jerusalem. And he sets the New Jerusalem as the heavenly alternative to Babylon. And so he's holding before his first century Roman audience a kind of alternative spiritualized reality, a vision of a city, New Jerusalem, that subverts everything Babylon stands for. And the message is to people facing despair at the evil of the world that they live in. The message is to people who fear they're trapped in Babylon and will never find their way out, to those who look at the world around them and weep with anger and frustration and pain at the evil that seems so unavoidable. John is saying the vision of New Jerusalem is a hopeful vision that the world does not always have to be this way. So for those in John's churches, the struggle against the might of Babylon was expressed as a struggle against the Roman Empire. And John's picture of the people of God as the New Jerusalem provides an alternative vision of humanity where God is in his rightful place amongst his people. So the New Jerusalem, this vision of the New Jerusalem, gives the heavenly perspective on their earthly lived reality. They actually don't live in Babylon at all. They live in New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is, is an image of the church, the people of God. And so Revelation presents this tantalizing vision of a world transformed, a world where different priorities can take root and grow. And it's encouraging those in these churches to persevere and overcome when confronted with the evil of the Babylon that they're living under. Some of you may be aware of the Rastafarian tradition. I know Duncan gave us a, a fascinating talk on this a couple of years ago, I think it was now, at Exchange. If you've ever listened to any kind of Bob Marley or Rastafarian music, you'll be aware that the word Babylon is used as a kind of cipher for Western capitalist tradition, would that be right, Duncan? Um, and I think what Rastafarians do with this word Babylon, it's just what John's trying to do with it in the book of Revelation. It's a kind of a cipher, a code word, an imaginative rethinking of whatever the dominant empire is that is suppressing and oppressing faithful living. And John's saying you don't have to live in Babylon. There's another way of living. You can be New Jerusalem on the earth in the present. So John invites his readers to see themselves as citizens of New Jerusalem, citizens of the dawning kingdom of God. He invites them to become participants with Christ in bringing this new city into being. So those in John's churches become the seeds of good news planted amongst the ashes of destruction. 
slightly more provocatively perhaps, I think we could even look at them as freedom fighters of peace in a world of fighting and unrest. To those who look at the world and see Babylon all around, and sometimes I look at the world and I see Babylon all around, John presents the option of saying that in Christ, this is not the way it should be and it does not have to be this way. And so he offers these two stark alternative realities to invite his readers to make a choice about which city they're going to inhabit. Which city is your citizenship going to be with? They can either keep their citizenship in the attractive, cosmopolitan, seductive, exciting, frightening, and ultimately satanic city of Babylon, or they can align themselves with the small and subversive, with the hidden and the dangerous, and start living as citizens of New Jerusalem. But John knows that this choice to move citizenship from Babylon to New Jerusalem is not without cost. John's first century uh, audience for his book faced both economic hardship and the possibility of persecution and even martyrdom for taking their stand against the might of the satanic empire. And there have been those down the centuries since who have found that living the reality of New Jerusalem in the midst of Babylon is similarly one which can attract persecution and difficulty. Martin Luther King Jr. took this idea of a battle against an empire fought without bombs, guns, or terrorism, and he applied it to the civil rights struggle of the mid-20th century. To those who were seeking to use violence against him, he said this, Throw us in jail and we will still love you. Threaten our children and bomb our homes and our churches and difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hours and drag us out on some wayside road and beat us and leave us half dead and difficult as it is, we will still love you. But be assured, we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Those who have sought in any age to establish their version of the kingdom of heaven on earth by use of force have inevitably ended up reinventing Babylon in their own day and age. This is John's great insight into the human tendency to construct empire. And even those kingdoms which begin with the best of intentions can end up as idolatrous alternatives to the one on the throne in heaven. And the battle against such idolatry can only be won by those who place their citizenship somewhere else, by those who transfer their citizenship out of Babylon and start living New Jerusalem, working for the establishment of an alternative way of being here on earth now. As we've seen in a recent sermon, Jesus compared the coming kingdom to yeast, small, hard to understand, invisible sometimes, and yet that which ultimately transforms the entire batch into bread. And the call of Jesus 
to understand the kingdom as small and subversive, I think, finds resonances in what John's doing here in Revelation, encouraging his people to become those who participate in the coming of the kingdom of God to the earth. So the New Jerusalem is described by John as descending from heaven to the earth. As we saw in one of the sermons earlier in this series, John has structured his book rhetorically so that in chapter 4, those reading it kind of get invited up through an open door into heaven, and then they bumble along through the next sort of 15 chapters, uh, seeing earth from heaven's perspective and gaining a whole load of different perspectives on it. And then here, right at the end, he returns them, us, back down to earth. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven back to earth, and John's readers come down to earth with a bump. The heavenly manifestation of the church has to become real on the earth. And the way John describes this descent is interesting. Following their journey with him through the heavenly realm, when his readers finally get back down to the earth, they find that everything is different. At the time they went up in chapter 4, they were simply those attending the seven congregations of Asia Minor, living under the dominion of Rome, struggling in their faith and their worship. By the time they're returned to the earth at the end of the vision, they know that they are the new Jerusalem. They are the eternal, glorious church. They have witnessed the vision of the destruction of the empire. They have witnessed the salvation of the nations. And this has changed everything for them. What John is trying to do is to transform our imaginations and the way in which we perceive and understand the world. And so the first heaven and the first earth are said to have passed away. John has taken his readers to a new understanding of creation, where God and people live in harmony with each other, where the hold of death is broken and where suffering is past. As you may have noticed in our readings earlier, John is drawing on a similar vision of a new heaven and a new earth from Isaiah. The book of Revelation is shot through with references to the Hebrew Bible. And my friend Ian Boxall says, this is not to be understood in terms of destroying the old or the obsolete in order to replace it with something completely different because neither Isaiah nor John use the language of destruction. Rather, John sees a profound renewal of that which is already there. So the new heaven and the new earth, it's not sweeping away the old and replacing it with a new one. And those strands of Christianity that have sought to engage with this as a we don't need to care for the earth because it's going to get blown away and we'll get a new one are wrong. We have to engage with things like climate change and creation care. We have to care for this world and see the world renewed because we know that God is bringing about a new thing. As with all of Revelation's imagery, John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth is not simply some future. It is a present realization. Chapter 21, verse 5, the voice on the throne says in the present tense, See, I am making all things new. Tom Wright says that the New Testament language of heaven and earth coming to an end followed by recreation is a metaphor for socio-political renewal. 
He says, there is virtually no evidence that the Jews were expecting the end of the space-time universe. There is abundant evidence that they, like Jeremiah and others before them, knew a good metaphor when they saw one, and that they used cosmic imagery to bring out the full theological significance of cataclysmic social events. That's Tom Wright. So John's audience are invited to realize that the existing world order, from a spiritual perspective, has already been destroyed. Its power has been broken. Babylon is fallen, and all things are now being made new. And we are invited to come to this realization that when the earth is seen from heaven's perspective, it is experienced differently. The future hope that is described here breaks into the present through the faithful witnessing of the faithful to the alternative reality of which they are a part, or to put it differently, New Jerusalem becomes real when those of us who are part of it start living it into being. The act of recreation that John talks about is an ongoing, active, present-day activity happening on earth through the faithful followers of the Lamb as creation is moving forwards. In this way, the church becomes the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him. The way John sees it, Christianity has no decisive break from Judaism. It is in continuity with it. And he sees the faithful people of God in his churches as in continuity with the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through them. So through all of this, the challenge that Revelation is giving to those who read it is ultimately to take up your citizenship of New Jerusalem, to become those who witness faithfully to the dawning heavenly kingdom. By John's understanding, everything depends on the faithful persevering with endurance through difficulty and tribulation. And it's only as the church fulfills this calling, which is indeed exercised sometimes through suffering and martyrdom, that the first fruits become the great harvest. John has, I firmly believe, a universal vision of salvation in view here. All of creation is embraced in the love of God. And the first fruits, which is the people of God that John is writing to, witness faithfully, bring about New Jerusalem so that all creation can be saved. Did you notice in our reading, all of the sinners, which is frankly most of us, end up in the lake of fire. And then a chapter later, they stood outside the gates of the New Jerusalem being invited in. This is not ultimately a message of destruction for the faithless. It's a message of hope for all that purification by God leads to salvation for everything and everyone through the faithful witnessing of the few. So there's this grand vision for the salvation of the cosmos in view here. John does not think small. But he ends, I think, with a very personal question, which is what city do you belong to? Is your citizenship with Babylon or New Jerusalem? Who has your ultimate allegiance, Babylon or New Jerusalem? Where is Babylon in our world? How does it own you? 
if your citizenship, however, is with New Jerusalem? What does it mean for you, for me, for us, to live as those whose citizenship is no longer with any earthly kingdom? What difference will being a citizen of New Jerusalem make to how you vote, to how you pray, to how you spend your money, to how you relate to others, to what you're going to do with your time? Because New Jerusalem only becomes a reality on this earth when those of us who claim to belong to it live it into being one day and one choice at a time. But if we do this, then the kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thank you. So we'll try that together and then we'll pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Great Christ of all love, in whose cross all power and authority finds its ultimate end, we come now to pray for those earthly powers which determine and dictate the lives of people. With an election before us, we lay before you those powers which present as our governing authorities. We pray for those who work in our government and the civil service and for all others at a national and local level who hold their delegated power on behalf of us all. We pray also for those governments around our world which have put aside any notion of appropriate representation and whose actions are perpetrated from base motives. May they see through you and in us a way of being human that respects the other, holds authority lightly but responsibly, and is ever alert to the temptation to selfish misuse of power. We pray for our politicians and for the election campaign that we are living through at this time. Grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, and the courage to act with compassion and mercy. Your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Great Christ of all love, in whose cross all power and authority finds its ultimate end, we lay before you those powers which present as military might. We pray for those in our armed services, for soldiers and generals, for peacekeepers and tactical forces, for law enforcers and legislators of law and for all others whose power relies on the application of force. 
We pray also for those armies and militia forces around our world which have put aside any notion of appropriate force and whose actions are perpetrated from base motives. May they see through you and in us a way of being human that respects the other, holds authority lightly but responsibly, and is ever alert to the temptation to selfish misuse of power. Grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, and the courage to act with compassion and mercy. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Great Christ of all love, in whose cross all power and authority finds its ultimate end, we lay before you those powers which present as economic might. We pray for those in our banks and businesses, for those who have personal wealth, and for those who handle great wealth on behalf of others. We pray also for those economic forces around our world which have put aside any notion of appropriate distribution, whose actions ignore the imperative of the common good and are instead perpetrated from base and selfish motives. May they see through you and in us a way of being human that respects the other, holds authority lightly but responsibly, and is ever alert to the temptation to selfish misuse of power. Grant them eyes to see and ears to hear, and the courage to act with compassion and mercy. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> 